This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Ellis James. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Tom Crane. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing marriage. From marrying your cousin in ancient Egypt to marriage in ancient Rome to the genuinely mortifying ideal of consummating your marriage in medieval Britain. There you go, buckle up. But shall we kick off with some correspondence? Let's do it. Now, last week, dedicated listeners will know that we talked about the awful life that people used to experience when they lived at sea and they worked at sea. And we've got quite a few emails on this subject and one that really stuck out for us. Now, this is from a guy called Samuel Robert Kinghorn, who is a Royal Navy officer. There you are. Look at this. Look at this is the sort of... And he was always going to be an officer with that name. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Although it also has a slight sort of sound of like a, a naughty posh schoolboy, King Horn. Yeah. <laughs> Damn is you! That a fro- is that a frog in your pocket? <laughs> Headmaster's office, King Horn. Um, now, um, Robert King Horn, Samuel Robert King Horn. Sorry, sir, has got in contact to say, um, I have an amusing slash terrifying anecdote about a life at sea that you three salty sea dogs may enjoy. I like that. Someone from the Navy yeah. is called a salty sea dog. <laughs> That's how I've always identified as a salty sea dog. <laughs> All emails from now on, please refer to, a salty sea, uh, yeah. refer to us as salty sea dogs. He said, Yeah, the SSDs. While on my previous unit, we were operating in the mid to north Atlantic on a nice day when it was fairly calm. And often in these sort of situations, we would stop the ship in the water and some crew would jump off and go for a swim. And this was what? in water that was, on average, six kilometres deep. Okay, oh, so. My. <laughs> nope. The, no, the battle cruiser would slow down and they would leap off into the six kilometer deep water. Picture approved. Oh my god! Picture attached as proof. There's a photo of him swimming around. He says, additionally, this is the bit that worries me, if perfectly honest. Additionally, you'll notice next to the bridge of the ship near the top that there is someone leaning on a minigun with a covering over it. And this man is on shark watch, which is exactly what it sounds like. And that's why oh, he's got a minigun ready. Kind regards, Sam, the Royal Navy officer. Hang there on. You go. If there's a shark. Sure, you know, attack it. So you're not going to try and shoot it, are you? With a minigun. Now then, I, I, I will never in my life need to swim that badly. <laughs> it is a good point, though. The adding, adding bullets to the mix. Bullets, something which is, I think, is one of the few things which is as dangerous as a shark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tossing those into the mix. Horrendous. 
I, I, I tell you one brief thing about this. This for me is like the epitome of... I'm exactly like you of things I would never want to do. I have a, a profound fear of sharks, also a profound fear of, of deep water. The two of those absolutely freak me out. And um, there is a reason for this. I don't know if I've told you about this before, but um, when I was eight, I was fascinated with sharks and I asked my mum for Christmas to buy me a book on sharks. And uh, she got quite confused. Instead, she bought me a book on shark attacks. And it was 300 pages of the most horrific images you've ever seen in your entire life. Oh, my God. (laughs) Who's publishing a book on shark attacks? Hardback. And it was like sepia images of men with their ribs missing and bodies lying on the beach. And just like Christmas Day underneath the tree, seeing like the most horrific book you've ever read. And that's why I've got this profound fear of sharks. So Samuel doing this to me feels like... Absolutely not uh, me. You know, you know the you know the gun guy. Yeah, who's meant to shoot the shark before the shark bites you to death? Yeah, has that ever worked? And they, <laughs> do they reassure people? Oh, it's fine. About three or four years ago, we were in the Caribbean actually, mm-hmm. and there was a there was a shark, and he he tried to bite one of the lads, but we just blew its head off with a gun, and then it was fine, and there was no collateral damage, and there were no no bullets sprayed anywhere, so we didn't want them to. No one no one got no one got hurt in the sort of crossfire. It was absolutely fine. The shark made an appearance. We blew its head off, yeah. and we carried on swimming. Um, this actually is close to a, a famous historical inaccuracy that I am aware of. You know the right. film Saving Private Ryan, the mm. the first yeah. scene. Where they're arriving on the beach on D-Day and one of the things that gets pointed out is that that is inaccurate because bullets do not fly through water in the way they're depicted in that scene so if you were to be if you were shoot there's too much friction in the water so if you were trying to shoot a shark if the shark is at a little bit of depth those bullets will not be hitting that shark yeah, you, you, you need a decent headshot <laughs> well you need you need the shark to leap out of the sea like free willy and then just completely like, take it down you're going to free willy it Anyway, do, would you fancy a bit of a palate cleanser? Should we move on from that email to something slightly yeah, more yes, cheery? Yes, please. Um, as always, you guys have been sending in some brilliant suggestions for things that we could talk about on the show, if it's not mini-gunning a, a great white shark from the side <laughs> of a ship. Um, William Hall, uh, who has suggested that we might want to talk about ketchup, um, he says, I'm loving the show, and but one little, little vignette of history that's worth looking into is the evolution of tomato ketchup. Starting out as a fish-based condiment hundreds of years ago that due to early storage techniques would routinely explode while being transported and was known to maim and even kill people. There you go. So there's a bit of, bit of fun. Again. Yeah. I love, I love red sauce. <laughs> Ketchup. <laughs> it's the perfect accompaniment to chips, bacon, pretty much anything. I don't need it in my life enough <laughs> to risk an exploding bottle. I think I'll go with mayo. Is that all right? I'll, I'll just have mayo yeah. on my BLT. That'll be fine. Well, I've got an idea. What, what if, on tomato sauce, what if the listeners do the research for us? If you want to send us any tomato ketchup facts, we'd love to read them next week. And uh, if you say it's got 57 different varieties, we know. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at earlwatertime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at earlwatertimepod. Now, clear off. Okay, so what are we talking about today? I'm going to be talking about medieval Britain and the horror of the marriage ceremony and, and what happens afterwards, which somehow is even worse. I'll be discussing marriage in ancient Rome. 
and I will be discussing marriage in ancient Egypt, which is, to be honest, a bit incesty. A bit cousin-heavy. I wanted to start this week with a real favourite passage about love and marriage, which comes from Catullus, a poet in Rome from the first century BC. Over a quarter of his poems were written about his girlfriend, I'm doing that in inverted commas, his girlfriend Lesbia, who was already married. I think it just sums up the tragedy of love and marriage, really. I hate and I love. You ask, perhaps, how can this be? I know not, but I feel it, and it is agony. <laughs> um, one question. Was he quite an intense guy to know? <laughs> was he the was he the bloke who walked into the pub and be like, oh, great cutlass, is he? Oh, God. You all yeah. right, mate? <laughs> Still feeling a combination of agony and ecstasy. Yeah, most of them. I bet he was constantly walking around with like p- pieces of paper just writing poems yeah. all the time. Like, if you saw that guy in a Weatherspoons, you'd go, what a loser. They were, they, they were the sort of... Um, Big budget sort of romantic signings in sixth form, though, weren't they? Those guys were the ones that got all the... That was what you wanted to be as a sixth former. Why on earth did I want to be brooding when I was 17? Why don't I want things to want to... <laughs> my son... Or my daughter... I don't think it's slightly, slightly different for girls, but if my, if my son begins to brood at 17, I'll say, just keep your chin up, mate. <laughs> it's not a great look. <laughs> I, was, I was so desperate to be even mildly attractive in sixth form my mum once told me I had lovely eyes and I would make an effort to make my eyes as big as possible when I was walking around <laughs> how lame is that so I would like really stretch them open so you see a lot of photos of me I look like I'm on pills because I'm, like really making my eyes massive because I thought this is what people find attractive my... <laughs> so these unfortunately right I had, I had a terrible track record with the opposite sex uh at school, and every time I'd go out uh, on the piss as a sort of 17, 18 year old, uh, when I was in sixth form, on the Saturday night, as I was about to go into town, my mum would always say, Oh, you look handsome. And every time I'd always say, But the evidence suggests otherwise, doesn't it? What you're saying comes from a position of love, but I need it to be evidence based, and you haven't got any evidence. You can't take a note from your mum into into a nightclub just to sort of no, reassure people. No, and say, no, no, exactly. Nesta says exactly. I'm stuck with brooding now until university. When <laughs> if I've got anything about me, I will do a complete personality swap. <laughs> my my brother has a friend who went to his church. I'm not sure if this is true, but apparently it is true. Who offered his wife a murray mint on a flight, and she thought she said he said, "Marry me, will you marry me?" And that is why they got married. That is generally what happened. They're on a, on a flight. She misheard it, and then he was like, "Well, I might as well go along with it now." And you know, they've now got children, and they are married. They're very, very happy. But oh, the initial man. thing was, "Do you want to marry me?" And that was literally. The, and the she offer. said, "Yes." I thought you'd never she ask. Said, <laughs> said, well, I, don't, I don't often have murray mints on me, but they help nice to stop my ears from popping. You've made me the happiest woman alive. <laughs> I've always wanted to try try this. I've always wanted to try a Murray Mint. I've dreamt of trying a Murray Mint since I was a little girl. Yeah. It does suggest he was going down on one knee while offering the Murray Mint, though. So that's quite a strange way to, 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 to offer someone a boiled sweet is to go if on one knee. Dr- if he dropped a load of Murray Mints, went down to pick them up, he was on one knee. Do you want a Murray Mint? <laughs> Hi, 
Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Ancient Rome. Now then, like much of Roman society, marriage was highly structured, but it was quite logical and there are parts of it, aspects of it, not all of it, obviously, but aspects of it are relatively modern. It was, wasn't always romantic, though. It, was, it tended to be an agreement between families. So men would usually marry in their mid-20s, uh, while women uh, married while well, they were still in their early teens. So as they reached these ages, the parents would consult with friends to find suitable partners that could improve the family's wealth or class. I mean, I'd say, Ellis, very briefly, you... you... As a 15-year-old, you're saying about your mum saying you're the most handsome person in the world. Do you think, how do you think it would have done for you if Nesta, at that point in your life, was finding you a wife? Well, <laughs> do you, you know think what? I was thinking be... about this, because obviously it puts an awful lot of, uh, it puts an enormous amount of uh, pressure on um, th- those early relationships, right? So most aristocratic women were married off in their mid-teens, and a woman who was not wed by 20 was considered a deviant. Okay, so if you've got wow. to the ripe old age of 20 and you're not married, the Emperor Augustus formalised this. He said, unmarried men are forbidden to receive inheritance and legacies. This disability begins for men at 25 years of age and for women at 20 years of age. So obviously, puts a huge amount of pressure on that one-week relationship you have in year nine. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> you've got to get that right, man. Oh, my goodness me. Think about the pressure... And the intensity of your crushes as you're 15. Yeah. I think if you yes. asked me at 15, the, the girl I fancied, who was in my class, would you marry her? I'd have been like, yes, yes, a thousand <laughs> times yes. <laughs> she is the one for me. The way she sits next to uh, that boy Adrian in maths and occasionally <laughs> looks at me when she needs to borrow a protractor, she yeah. is the woman I want to live with for the rest of my <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. At that point, you sort you you also read into every interaction as so profoundly important and wonderful, oh, yeah. and then you analyse it afterwards. There was a, a girl in my sixth form. Who she wanted to borrow a set square today. Maybe does that absolutely. mean she fancies me more or less than after the protract today? Oh my god! <laughs> well, I remember she once rang me about history homework, and I was so happy for like you three days after. <laughs> <ranking. laughs> What happened there? She's gone, who's the biggest nerd in the class? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which loser's going to help me with my homework? Oh, here we go. How dare you? I got, well, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I'm now doing a history history podcast. So yeah. <laughs> she knew. And this, this is why knew. I'm doing this podcast, in a desperate attempt to get back with... <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. There, there, there's so much pressure attached to that. Yeah, um, you, but one thing I was thinking is, like... Yeah, there's a pressure to get kind of married at probably 15 years of age. But you're also probably dead at 40. So, like, yeah. if you divide your life, that is actually... Yeah. You probably need to be getting married at 15 because you're not. there's not much coming after this. The average first marriage in ancient Rome lasted for about 14 years and the most frequent reason behind its ending was death. <laughs> the high mortality meant it would not be unusual to marry more than once. So... 
you're in love with a girl in year nine. She sits next to a boy you know in maths. You send, you lend her a protractor or a set square, whichever is the sexiest piece of mathematical apparatus. She says yes. Your mum and her mum get together at the school gates and agree that it's on. You're married. In 14 years' time, all being well, she's died. You get another go at it. By that point, you're in your mid-twenties. You know yourself a little bit more. You've been in a long-term relationship. That is the ideal scenario. A widow at 28. Obviously, like lots of ancient civilizations, the rules around adultery... Um, I mean, lots, especially the women, it's rules that to, to modernise look crazier. It's been held that women convicted of adultery should be punished with the loss of half of their dowry and the third of their goods, and by relegation to an island. The adulterer, however, <laughs> shall be deprived of half his property and shall also be punished by relegation to an island, provided the parties are exiled to different islands. You don't want to yeah. send them to the same <laughs> island. <laughs> I can't reiterate <laughs> enough that you really... <laughs> Our punishment is you two off to a tropical island. <laughs> you two shaggers are off you to a tropical shaggers. island. <laughs> Augustus himself was obliged to invoke the law against his own daughter, Julia, and relegated her to the island of Pandateria. Wow. Now, this I found really interesting. Tombstones record some qualities and traits that were deemed positive in the Roman period. Some of the most common positive attributes used by husbands to describe their deceased wives include chaste, obedient, friendly, old-fashioned, <laughs> frugal, content to stay at home, pious, dressed simply, good at spinning thread and good at weaving cloth. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. That's a headline on your tombstone. What what did you love most about your wife? Well, God, hard to say, really. Um, she was old-fashioned and she was good at spinning thread. So, in the early Republic, you couldn't marry anyone closer than your second cousin, right? Which I think... They've got that one right, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, by the first century um, uh, CE, you could marry your brother's daughter, niece to uncle. That was absolutely fine. Oh, my goodness. So, But, however, you couldn't marry persons associated with unsavoury occupations, i.e. prostitution, acting and tavern-keeping. So if you, <laughs> the big three. If, you married, if you married your niece... That was all right. If you, if you married someone who'd gone to drama school, people were like, oh, you dirty bastard. Or, or running a sports bar. <laughs> if, you, would be. if you married someone who'd run a walkabout that was uh, that was very accessible to big groups and stags. Yeah, you're like, oh, jeez, jeez, gee whiz. Why don't you yeah. just be normal and marry a niece? I'll tell you what, if you're an out-of-work out of actor working behind the bar at a tavern, you are the lowest of the low. <laughs> you are scum. Yeah. My dad, uh, that attitude, he would fitted in quite well in ancient Rome in that case because uh, my brother Michael was once in a primary school nativity play. And uh, playing, uh, not even the lead, I think he was the innkeeper. Yeah. And he came off stage at the end, at the age of nine, and my dad went up to him and said, don't get any funny ideas about becoming an actor. Oh, wow. <laughs> sure, so you smashed it as the innkeeper the just now. Yeah. So my dad would absolutely have just, applauded that approach. Just concentrate on getting some very normal ideas about marrying your auntie. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm starting to think that I wouldn't have enjoyed living in ancient Rome. You get this idea of ancient Rome in the movies and stuff, which feels quite exciting and sort of yeah, of wine, fountains of wine, and yeah, all this sort of stuff. Platters, like, they, they, like, they cut out that sort of niece dating business from Gladiator. That doesn't really come in much. Does like it? Not, it, everything, though. And I, I remember having this discussion when I was a history student, actually, uh, yeah. sort of with my housemates. At any time, in, if you were, if you could be sort of airdropped into any period in history, it is always much, much better if you're rich. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're rich, it will be so much better than often a couple of hundred years in the future if you're poor. And that I think, that was, again, it was, it was um, I think if you were well off in ancient Rome... It must have been all right. I mean, the, the 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 what I think we would all find difficult is that they were such strict power structures, and it was such an ordered society, and you couldn't really. I think it's it's seemingly quite difficult to deviate from that stuff, which I would find difficult. Mm. But you know, I was a brooding seventeen-year-old who wrote very bad poetry to impress girls <laughs> in regional nightclubs. So make them know what you were. Yeah, Ellis. As I found when I was reading about the medieval uh, England, as I will talk about later. It does feel one of the things about the rich-poor divide when it comes to marriage, and it seems similar in Rome, is that basically poorer people tended to marry for love more than the rich. Yeah. It seems often the rich are kind of marrying for status, for continued financial security, whatever it happened to be. It's like that scene in the Titanic when they're sort of having a lovely time and swinging around below Having a laugh. Having a proper, having (laughs) a good laugh. They're all genuinely like each other. We're upstairs. It's kind of, it's all forced and, you know, it's all done for money. I mean, if if you're poor, right, in medieval Wessex... And you yeah. quite fancy a girl, and she quite fancies you, and it's all you've got to offer her is a, a turnip. turnip. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, well, I've got half an onion. You're like, oh, sod it. Yeah. Oh, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> I've got two turnips, you've got a carrot, let's stick them together and have a laugh. <laughs> Come on. We're not above that. Yeah. Look, everyone, we'll gather around. We'll, we'll have a laugh, and then we'll make some soup. <laughs> Um, I mean, there were over 50 Roman deities that were in, that were in some way involved in the reproductive process. So, right. um, uh, Liber, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was the god of wine and semen. <laughs> how, did he, how did he get that portfolio? Whose who's, who's temples were <laughs> signified by... Which is which, by the way, before I drink? <laughs> okay, Whose temples were signified <laughs> by a phallus. Say that again, what was that? His temples were signified by a phallus. They love, they love that in ancient Rome, didn't they? Every pot's got a big old knob on it. Like, <laughs> come on, guys, can you not draw something else? Like the front of a soft schoolboy's jotter. <laughs> Do you know what I yeah, love? Do you know what I love? I have visited cathedrals and monasteries where there is carved graffiti from occasionally hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and I love that. Mm. There is something about it that I find so compelling. Where it'll be some teenager got you know a chisel and decided to carve seventeen eighteen into a wall, which must have taken him or her absolutely ages as well. Yeah, and they often they do little sort of cocks and balls, <laughs> just like you would on your school desk. <laughs> yeah, do it's they? so weird. Well, I guess like that. It's, it's such a it's such a fundamental. It's deep in there, isn't it? It's innate to draw a cock and balls, yeah. and that has been the case for hundreds of well, years. Well, look at the guy. That, what's, what's that huge guy on the side of that hill? What's he called? The oh. guy with the big erection. That, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that guy. It's, I'm sure that's not his actual <laughs> official title, but 
<laughs> We're going on a school trip to see the guy <laughs> with the big erection. The guy who started drawing that. And then, like, drink when his mates came over. And he's like, what, what are you drawing? I'm going to draw this guy with a massive knob. They must have just cracked up. What do you reckon? What do you reckon he's... Which part, Chris, do you Definitely reckon he started with? When you're looking start through, you're, face, let's say you're, you're, living in the vi- you're living in the village at the bottom of the hill and you're looking up. The first two days, is it just a cock and balls? And then, <laughs> and then he does the rest of it. Or is well, it- maybe he started started drawing a nice face, the nice legs. Is and the, the villagers are like, this is quality. This is really coming along. Quality. And then overnight on the last night, <laughs> when everyone's gone to bed, I'll get the cock done now. And the villagers go, what is this? <laughs> It's the Kernabas giant. It's a hill figure. I think oh, it's yeah. Kern. Okay. I hope it's not Cern. Anyway, it's in Dorset. 55 metres high. Depicts a standing nude male with a prominent erection and wielding a large club in his right hand. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's backfilled with short rubble. I've never thought about that, actually, Ellis. Very briefly, what is the situation that's depicting? Why has he got a club and a boner? <laughs> What is what's happening? <laughs> there's lots of different. I mean, there's, I'm just I've been googling it, and there are lots of different interpretations as to why he's standing there naked with a big club. I mean, okay. fertility is is the most well known one. Yes, yeah. I have one final question about that. <laughs> the guy on the hill God. is. Do you think it affected property prices in the area? <laughs> <laughs> I think it really, really depends on the buyer. <laughs> it's either going to be a case of, right, we're leaving, or we'll take it. <laughs> no one, no one is sort of ambivalent or indifferent. It's yeah, the end of the right. day. The estate agent's like, we're never going to shift this. And then you see the garden gate open, and in comes a man who's naked with an erection holding a club. <laughs> you go, we found our buyer. Well, we touched on uh, some notes of incest there. And if you like incest, then jump in the DeLorean. Let's head back to ancient Egypt. Because, boy, <laughs> have I got some stories for you. You know, the, the majority of girls in ancient Egypt got married between 12 and 13. And boys were typically a year or two older. Average life expectancy in ancient Egypt, 36. Bloody wow. hell. That's mad, isn't it? So we're all dead. We're all dead. Long dead. Wow. Crazy. So the distinctive feature, I would say, about marriage in ancient Egypt is, of course, that there was no rules against the the, the union of close relatives, brothers and sisters. Hmm. In love songs in ancient Egypt, the words brother and sister have the same significance as husband and wife. Oh, dear. And there was none of the common horror of incest. Not only was the brother permitted to marry his sister, but it was customary. Oh, my and what, God. Wow. Oh, I've and got two th- sisters. One was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's going to cut. What a rift. You've got a choice. You've got a choice. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Uh, and also, the one thing I, I didn't realise was that I assumed in ancient Egypt it was just the nobility, but it wasn't. It was the most suitable type of marriage between brother and sister of all ranks of society. Yeah. So, Everyone wow. is at it. I've got enormous questions about yeah. the implications in terms of children. Yeah. Well, have you ever seen yeah. Tutankhamun? They did a reconstruction, I saw on some documentary. He had a, a disproportionately massive arse. He had like an underbite. And it, all of this was the result of incest, like really? generational. Wow. Yeah. What's kind of interesting about that is you, you think 
the royal family, that would have been... You could see that sort of preservation of power. That's about maintaining the control within your bloodline, all that sort of stuff, and not letting others in. That's exactly what it is. I've googled the rendering the real face of King Tut. Yeah. From the BBC documentary uh, Tutankhamun, The Truth Uncovered, and... You're right, Chris. I mean, he's 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 not a good-looking guy, <laughs> so, you know, by modern, by conventional modern standards. Good. But his sister thought he was very handsome. So it was all right. <laughs> Goodness me. He died. King Tutankhamun died young as well. And you look at him when they kind of they recreate what he would have looked at, and you you go, there, yes, there is no way that guy is living very long. Wow. Like, um, I had yeah, no idea. Generations of inbreeding. Finally, um, incest gets some bad press. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> someone's saying it. Um, and, and they're gods, actually. They got like Osiris married his sister. Like it was so such a central part of of their kind of society. That's crazy, really, really. But interestingly, scholars say that their domestic lives were very happy. Egyptian women would share the work and the recreation of their husbands. They would go on with their husbands on hunting and fishing expeditions. There's lots of drawn scenes of husbands and wives entertaining. It's really common. Um, I don't think any of this makes up for the fact you're having to marry your sister. <laughs> no. I don't think that's... An, I get to go on the odd fishing trip, but I'm marrying my sister. <laughs> that's not enough of a... But what's yeah. interesting about um, Egyptian culture as well is like the harem. It was a it was a really accepted part of Egyptian culture. So, a man who could afford it would have a number of female household slaves, who, as a matter of course, became part of his harem. There was no moral issue moral issue involved. His right to them was accepted, but he would only have one woman as his legitimate wife. Right, <sighs> you've got to think about her role in all this. <laughs> Yeah. Her feelings. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but having met in the in the in the in the late eighties, right when they brought in compulsory seatbelt wearing, having seen the fuss people made about that, and yeah. yet it was it was obviously it was a legal requirement to wear a seatbelt. You get old men saying, "Oh, you'll never catch me wearing a seatbelt." The old, yeah, it's fine that my husband can have sex with who he wants because that's an accepted part of society. Maybe sitting there thinking, fucking jeez, he's at it again with someone who he isn't related to, the dirty old son. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Get in any way related. <laughs> not even related. From a different time. That's disgusting. <laughs> so so how, how many people would be in the harem then? Well, Pharaoh Ramesses II had 48 to 50 sons and 40 to 53 daughters. So, oh my goodness. Oh lots. My God. Like, I find two children a lot to deal with. <laughs> yes. Although, do you, was, he do, was, he getting, was he doing the early wake-up with all 70 of them, do you think? Or was he kind of... <laughs> and this is also, this is, this is pre-sort uh, of, CI, you know, you could, there's no Mr Tumble and all that sort of stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind you of, you're, you're up with them and you're entertaining them. Do you want to look at some hieroglyphics? <laughs> Come, come look at the hieroglyphics. All right, you don't want to watch the hieroglyphics? Right, well, I'm out. Also, the state of the hand-me-downs for child number 70 as well. By the time the clothes get down to him. Decades out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Typical youngest child of 70. Well, I was the fourth child, and there was a huge age gap between me and my brothers. So you talk about fashion changing. Pictures of me as a child. Everyone else is 
all, everyone else in my class is like dressed in shell suits and stuff in the 80s you're supposed to I'm in like these wide flares like, oh, it's, 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 like from a different generation because my brother my youngest <laughs> brother was 15 years older than me that's amazing uh, so I have all these old clothes once at school I found um, a, a coin in my pocket that was no longer legal tender <laughs> 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 It'd been out of circulation for like twelve years. Um, how? Yeah, being one of seventy children, trying to get a bit of time with your parents, some yeah. kind of feeling. Trying to get a piece of, piece of quiet you. in the house. <laughs> Having your parents remember your name is going to be a yeah. struggle. I don't think I know seventy people's names. <laughs> no. You know that I do this thing now, and I I am like a sort of a, a parent in an eighties sitcom where I mm. want to say Izzy, but I'll go through everyone else in the house's name first before I get to Izzy. Stefan, Betty, Izzy, sorry. Imagine yes. doing that with 70 kids. Impossible. Tony, yeah. Rachel, Terry, Malcolm, Graham, Colin, <laughs> Philip. Yeah. <laughs> All those classic Egyptian names. <laughs> <laughs> Terry. <laughs> okay. Imagine the Christmas, pre- the wrapping on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Oh, my God. So huge harems, loads of children, yeah, and you're yeah. married to your sister. This is the this is the Egyptian approach. Also, you you do that funny walk wherever you walk as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's, the other that's part of the course. <laughs> well, that's the incest, isn't it? It's the club. <laughs> that's what it does. It's, it's the club foot. Yeah, they can't actually remove themselves from that position at any time. Reversed elbows and wrists. God, that is bad. Made fantastic waiters though, didn't they? You put a tray on each other. <laughs> So, um, so I've been reading about marriage in medieval England, uh, which, for those who don't know, sort of ran from the end of the 5th century to the start of the early modern period, which is 1485. And it's kind of interesting because it's a period when official marriage became sacred and sort of modern wedding rituals and traditions we have today first appeared. And also... It's interesting because it's completely insane. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's mad what happened. So in early medieval England, sort of like initially marriage wasn't like it wasn't like a religious affair. So you could get married anywhere, uh, like in the in the road, in the pub, at your mate's house. This is what people used to do wherever you wanted. You, you didn't need witnesses either. You didn't need a priest. You just needed all you needed to do was give your consent. So people would say, "Do you want to get married?" And you go, "Yeah." And then you just, if you both wanted to do it, then it would, could just happen then and there if you agreed. That's it. To it's it. done. That's literally all it was. <laughs> the old getting married in in the road without having to have any witnesses seems quite uh, convenient. I quite, I quite like. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the medieval English have got some in right. Planning a wedding is quite stressful yeah. as well. It's expensive. Yeah. It's really fun. The day was really fun. I got married, as you say. You were both there about a month and a half ago. Uh, I really loved it, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of work. Could have just done it in so the street. You see, could have exactly. just done it in the street. <laughs> and you don't even need a priest. You just need to say, yeah, do you want to do it? Outside, yes. Could have done it outside Superdrug. <laughs> so this is what people used to do. They pre- In the early medieval period, they'd just say, do you want to get married? Or they maybe have a couple of people there, but often they just wouldn't bother. They wouldn't have anyone. It would just be an agreement between two people. But the issue with this is it caused problems if at a later date, one of them claimed it never happened. Oh, of course. <laughs> like, yeah. a, but that means every marriage has a, like, a get-out clause because you can just deny it. Exactly, which is why in the 12th century, 
the church made it a holy sacrament that had to be observed by God. So basically, uh, the game changed at that point because people were constantly <laughs> trying to get out of marriages and just going, know. "Oh, I can just say no." <laughs> Lived exactly, for eighteen nobody, years, yeah, <laughs> three kids together, twenty years. No, 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 we're not. Because we there right. was no because no one in Halfords heard us agree to get married that, <laughs> that afternoon last week. Whatever, yeah. you can just sort of claim find claim someone who was stood outside Saint Dundere on that day eighteen years ago. So let's do it. <laughs> So, in medieval times, as we discussed earlier, um, sort of the lower classes often they married for love. The wealthy, as we talked about in Rome, they sort of married for money and power. And to, by extension, of that actually wealthy medieval children were often betrothed in infancy. So uh, you would have a child, and you would decide what other baby you want your baby to get married to. My son is four. Yeah. He's not ready to settle down. <laughs> <laughs> would he be, would he be a good husband? No, he's so into cars. <laughs> yeah. He's got his sort of single issue conversationalist. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was it was cars uh it's been cars this month. It was uh it was eggs last month and it was the, it was ducks the month before that. So he yeah. doesn't even know himself. He's certainly not ready to settle down. I, I find that idea quite appealing, where it's like, well, I don't need to do any of the legwork to find a wife. Someone is going to go out and do it for me, and I'll just turn up. Well, uh, you'd, hope, you'd hope it would be your parent. This is the issue, though, Chris. So right. it wouldn't necessarily be someone who is looking for the right baby and has your interests at heart, because if your father died and he hadn't arranged marriages for you, for his children, it then became the responsibility of the landlord in the area you lived. It was his responsibility to find you uh, a suitable uh, partner right. as, a, as, as a child, basically, for when you, when you grew of age. And he's got I mean, boilers to not I, I, fix. Yeah, exactly. He's got, he's got a lot of stuff on. <laughs> like, when I... My first house in Cardiff, Ellis, I don't know if I knew you uh, then, when I moved in, my room was up in the roof... And they hadn't finished building the roof. So it was just yes, black this. bin bags across yeah. the... Um, yeah. And that was like that for like a month and a half. And the idea that that man would be finding me... <laughs> <laughs> a man who couldn't finish a roof isn't going to really be the person that <laughs> would actually let me lie in it. <laughs> or animals try to get in and could get in if they'd really pushed it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so that was it was the landlord's responsibility, and also they would often profit because they would sell off your marriage rights, basically. To Bloody landlords, man! Exactly, yeah. Landlords from hell. And then at the wedding, things got sort of even weirder in medieval Britain. First of all, you had the best man. The best man isn't what he is today. You know, goes and gives a funny speech. He was oh, guys, to be the, a great stag. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great what we do? No, uh, your options are the tavern. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get him in. It's only mead. We're going to the tavern. Two villages over. We're staying out three yeah. nights. Different postcode. <laughs> Obviously, if it does kick off, big group of lads in a different village. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that tends to happen. We will get boiling oil poured over us. So, <laughs> I've booked us in for some archery. And you say, well, if, well, thank goodness it isn't paintball. That's the only thing I don't want. Um, the, so the best man, was the person you choose would be the best swordsman. 
uh, you knew because it was their job to fend off the bride's angry family if they didn't approve or if someone tried to steal your bride. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a best man, but that was your, your job. You were given a sword and it was your responsibility to fight anyone that had a problem with the wedding, basically. <laughs> That's a stitch-up. Yeah. That's a stitch-up if you know you're going to have a battle on your hands. Isn't it's, it? it's the issue like, to do that now. <laughs> In that sort of scenario, so you probably don't even like the bride. It's, it's a, also as a best man, you've got to weigh up how hard are the bride's family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, this I think in my mind, medieval time, basically everyone was hard. That's what I, I, in my mind, that's what it is because it's such a tough existence back then. I don't think people were. I think it was just naturally in your character, surely, wasn't it? That fighting was such a way of life. Yeah, I guess like that's evolution, isn't it? You're. It's just hard people are just the ones who have survived. So everyone's going to yeah. be hard. I think basically any anyone who lived pre-central heating is hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree with I that. I do feel that compared to me. Um, but things weren't easy for the bride either um, at the wedding. So the maddest thing that happened at the wedding is the bride's dress was associated with good luck. And often at the end of the wedding, uh, the entire congregation would chase her and try and rip bits of the dress off her um ideally the garter because the garter was a thing you wanted and apparently if you handed that to your lady uh it would mean you would then go on to have a successful and faithful marriage i hate to bring sport into this but at the end of the 1970 world cup final fans get on the pitch and they're stripping the brazilian players for souvenirs and i can't remember who it is it's someone like jarzinho they they get off his socks, his shirt, and his shorts, and he's no. shitting himself because they're, they're going for his pants. <laughs> <laughs> and he's fighting with them because he does. As my friend Mike put it, he doesn't want to show his knob to a TV audience of a billion people. <laughs> oh, that's the stuff of nightmares. The stuff of absolute nightmares. Imagine being Super- stripped by feral football fans. <laughs> In front of the TV audience of a billion people. Get off me, get off me, get off me, get off me. That, that is so anxiety-inducing. But as a bride, knowing you've got that moment ahead of you all through your wedding day, when, when does absolutely. it start? Is, it, is, it, is there a formal beginning to the chase? So this would be it... after the wedding celebration, basically, and before you God, go she, she's to your marital bed. She's full of cake and pissed. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, just after the speech is there, basically. <laughs> The final speech ends with three, two, one, go, and then yeah. she sort of just she sprints. But people say this is where the tossing of the garter comes from because that's wow. one of the feelings. It might have been that basically you toss your garter away to try and make the crowd run off in a different direction briefly so you can get away. Fuck so this is possibly where that idea came from. I mean, surely you absolutely. If I was a bride heading towards that, I'd go into an intense period of training. Oh, before. Yeah. I'd be on the track. <laughs> Every morning for about six yeah, months. Walk, walk, walking down the island, spikes. There are about spikes, track yeah. wheels. The congregation going, oh, God, look, look at those calves. Yeah, yeah. It's very odd. First ever bro- like, very micro-wedding dress, yeah, completely say, clinging to me, so I'm as aerodynamic as possible. Why is she dressed like Flojo? But, they were, but it was apparently, it was part of the... Um, 
it was completely acceptable to be quite aggressive about this. And part of that is they thought it sort of helped to whip them up into a bit of a fervour ahead oh of consummating their, their marriage. So there's also this idea that it was all right to be quite rough and really just tear huge parts of the wedding dress away. So this is what, see what happened. Um, during the service, it wasn't kind of particularly dignified either for, for the bride. Um, one of the things that often happened in medieval weddings, the father of the bride would give one of the bride's shoes to the groom who would then uh, tap her on the head with the shoe as a show of authority. I don't know what that is. As a show of authority. You it's don't so need to do that. <laughs> Someone tapping you on the head with a shoe. Is oh, nice. I think that's the least dignified thing you can also, do. Also, it's like, it's medieval Britain, so that shoe is covered in shit. Yeah, yeah, and it's made yeah. of wood. <laughs> it's, it's a clog. It's like being hit on the, on the head with a mallet. <laughs> I'm, I was born in 1980, and I don't think I'm cut out for society prior to about 1978. Yes. <laughs> it just all sounds nuts. This next bit is the worst bit of all. This is a bit that I think you'll agree none of us or anyone would enjoy most um, much, which is that when marriage became a holy sacrament, it became very important that it was consummated. Uh, so after the ceremony the congregation would follow the couple to their marital bread, bed sorry, and either stay outside or often come in and gather around and watch them consummate the marriage. Oh, my God. Now, the God. idea being it was proof. If it ever came up that it was consummated, they could say, well, we have witnesses. <laughs> we have 40 witnesses. <laughs> we have 40 witnesses, exactly. Man. So people would gather around the bed... Some of the family would lift the, the groom in, other no. friends stuff would lift the bride in, and then they'd sort of like start cheering and they'd kind of they 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 lose their virginity in front of forty I people. Oh my god. Shy. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think you'd manage in that situation? And would it affect who you invited to your wedding? <laughs> Yeah, no family. We're doing no family for this wedding. Yeah, I'd have to say I'm so sorry, Mum. You can't come. <laughs> no. to we'll have a nice meal. We'll we'll go yeah. to the tavern. We'll have a nice meal, and you know you'll we'll get to see together, all but this the isn't pictures. All the photographs. They'll all, they'll all get put on Facebook. <laughs> they're they're for you to keep. <laughs> but this bit is not for you. Yeah. So the stress of it all. Yeah. With that situation, you think everything is awful. But it's not all bad because if your marriage in the 13th century then lasted a year after that point, you would be given, uh, as, a, as a well done, you'd be given a slab of bacon. <laughs> um, that was the... <laughs> so it's not all bad. So this tradition has been traced back to this guy called Lord Fitzwalter in the reign of Henry III, who ordered that whatever married man did not repent of his marriage or quarrel with his wife and a year and a day after it should go to the priory and demand bacon uh, on, his, <laughs> on, his, on his swearing to the truth, kneeling on two stones in the churchyard. Yeah. So you'd have to go to the, uh, the priory, tell them that your marriage is going well, and then they'd give you some bacon. No basically. wonder the friar still has such a totemic... <laughs> <laughs> Impact on British culture and society. Yeah. This is why I think like living in this day and age is the best because that little bit of bacon you have in your breakfast that was the best part of your yeah, life yeah, in yeah, medieval yeah. Britain. That was, that was a treat, the bacon, and that is just one little aspect of modern life. It's still quite high up there for me, to be honest. <laughs> I think bacon with a fry up is still pretty high up. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. bacon and Wi-Fi. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't get much better than that. Uh, but you you had to be honest about how your marriage was going to get the bacon, which suggests that they're just like the people who work in the pie are just real gossips. They they kind of. <laughs> I, I, I'd give more bacon if you told the truth about how things were going. <laughs> if, you, if you listed the top three things your partner did that really annoy you, then you'd get loads yeah. of bacon. <laughs> I want the good stuff. I want what's the most embarrassing thing she's done in the last year. Oh, that's funny. So I want. And the more you give, the more bacon you get. People making up stories. <laughs> Waking up in the middle of the night really thirsty because you've just got an entirely bacon-orientated diet. <laughs> so much salt. Because <laughs> of all the fabulous gossip about your wife that you've, you've furnished the bacon yeah. man with. Going down every morning to add more. Yeah. <laughs> you come home with the bacon and the wife says, you're like, what, she, what have you told them to get that much bacon? Yeah. So... This is what would happen if it's going well, you'd get your bacon. If it wasn't going well, um, it's sort of tricky in medieval England because divorce wasn't an option, only annulment. That's all you had. Annulment was really expensive and only permissible for a few reasons, which were adultery, leprosy and impotency was one of the major ones. Uh, uh, do you guys want to guess Impotence, how they, how they tested honest. for the... <laughs> understandable in these scenarios <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah absolutely <laughs> if you're failing to perform in front of your family and uh, at what point does the the impotence clause start getting widely discussed yeah. in that room uh, how is that not normal <laughs> <laughs> so what, would you, you like fail to get a hard on in front of your mum and dad <laughs> and your sarcastic brother yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. The Say, bride's father going, okay, well, we've always got the impotency get out, so yeah. this is this is fine. Well, would you like to guess how they tested for the impotency? Uh, how they tested for impotency? Because oh, that was God. also pretty undignified. Yeah, yeah. Good call, then. It was something called a bedroom trial. Uh, and court cases from the 14th century show that bedroom trials took place to check if impotence was true and if the marriage could continue. So the husband and wife would be placed in a room and they'd be watched by a group of wise women for several nights to see if the man could muster oh, an erection. Oh, dear. What? Just, just watched? Alone yeah, in a so, room? and they would, they, would, they would fondle, they'd like, you know, poke it and do things like this, whatever. And What uh, if you're not in the also, <laughs> Well, and, it, and if it, nothing happened, after a few days, they go, oh, yes, you are impotent. It's, poke, um, it's poked by some w- w- strange woman you don't know. Well, either strangers or weirdly, it, it, please the, no. The only person who wasn't a stranger it please was the, the, no. groom, the groom's grandmother, oh. <laughs> which I would say was the one name we didn't want to hear. <laughs> that was what happened uh, in England. Uh, final thing, uh, I would say that I think things were much worse in Germany, though. Um, where How? There was uh, well, it's. Uh, you may disagree, but I think this is pretty horrific. There was German law in medieval times allowed for marital disputes, so let's say you wanted a divorce or it was a big argument about something like that, to be settled in the ring. Uh, <laughs> but they had very specific rules on the way this was done. So the wife was allowed a cloth sack which contained three rocks. <laughs> Like the worst visit yeah. from Santa ever, <laughs> and you, which he would use to whack the husband. The husband was allowed three clubs. Okay, now you think a club's better than a rock, isn't it? In a in a, in a sack, 
the only other thing is that the husband also had to stand in a three foot wide hole that had been dug into the ground with one hand tied behind his back. And if he ever touched the edge of the pit with his hand or his arm, he then had to surrender one of the clubs. So every time oh, he touched the side three, of the hole, he'd lose one of his clubs. So the wife would run around the edge of the perimeter whacking him while he would swing at her with his club and not try and touch the perimeter of the, uh, of the thing. Um, <laughs> and at the end of it... Uh, Often the loser would be put to death, so the man would be oh my God. put to death, or the woman, the wife, if she lost, she would be uh, buried alive. So it wasn't uh, an ideal end to things, but it did, it did sort of wrap things up. If you were looking to knock things on the head, if yeah. you were going to have some kind of answer, one of you was going to be single. Do you know what it offers? <laughs> Closure. Closure, exactly. <laughs> it, it would, sorry, it would make you want to resolve any. Uh, arguments you had though wouldn't it with your partner yeah if you knew that's where it's heading puts a lot yeah. of pressure on that first meeting at relate yeah <laughs> we've got to get this right <laughs> after, but you after... wouldn't let petty you wouldn't let petty things fester would you if it was sort of like an argument unless, about hanging up the washing or unless whatever. you were very good at hitting people with rocks <laughs> in which case you thought yeah i'm just gonna let him annoy yeah. me and I will settle this once and for all. <laughs> so that's married life in the past, then. Um, what are we thinking? None of those are great options. No. No. Which, which era are we thinking we'd go for? They all seem horrendous. I don't want to marry my sister. I don't have a sister, so I think I'm going to, I'm going to knock ancient Egypt on the on the on the yeah, head. That feels yeah. like one I really I really don't want well, to do that. Well, being rich uh, seems to be the number one priority, as ever. Yeah. Yeah. As ever. Yep. Um, ancient Rome, good climate. You've got the weather. You've got the wine. You've got the yeah, weather. That is true. And central heating in the winter. And although it is quite an ordered uh, yes. an ordered society, you know. It's kind of like you know where you stand with it all. I mean, Egypt sounds horrific, as does me- medieval England. Yeah, I medieval to... England just feels like humiliating. It never. I think f- it's the ta- yeah. It never. I think f- almost it's the little things like the tapping of the head on a sh- with a shirt. Yeah, it <laughs> never just, fails I don't need that. to amaze me. Humanity's capacity for cruelty and humiliation. Absolutely. Yeah. Even on your wedding day, <laughs> building, your that, wedding. building that in. Like the one day you think, that's so I'm true. probably not going to be humiliated today. This is my day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, they always said it was my, it was going to be my day. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're getting chased around, have someone trying to tear a garter from your leg. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it, 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 the medieval wedding, it's like they've created the worst day possible yeah. for the bride, haven't they? <laughs> She's getting tapped yeah. on the head with a shoe. Chased out of the room and her clothes ripped off. Yeah. And then yeah. she has to have her, sex in front of Uncle Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is it for this week. We'll be back next week, of course. Please do leave us a rating and a review because it helps uh, potential history fans um, uh, to find the podcast. Um, so it's, it's not just uh, uh, ego-driven that's a common misconception. It's genuinely helpful as part of the process. So if you could leave us a very kind review and a, sort of a five-star review, that would be very, very helpful. And you can contact us on hello at owatertime.com. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Uh, and don't forget those tomato ketchup facts. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.